And on Four Triple Z, you are listening to Eco Radio with me, Jeff Ebbs, standing in for Dave Whitfield today, who's come down with a horrible bug that we all hope is not COVID nineteen. Uh, David's done all the work today of setting up the uh, interviews and uh, so on. So, um, shout out to David. Get well soon. Hope it is not the horrid disease. Now, one of the things that David has organised is to have Dr. John Dwyer in the studio. G'day, John. G'day, Jeff. Uh, you're a senior lecturer at the School of Biological Science in the University of Queensland. What are you studying or researching there? Uh, so I guess you call me a plant community ecologist. Okay, so ecology usually involves plant communities and what yeah. are you observing among the plant communities that you are studying? Yeah, so we ask a, a range of questions. Sometimes we're asking why is there why are there so many plants, in, in, so many different species, if you like, and other times we're trying to unscramble the egg um, after sort of human land use changes uh, you know, disturbed ecosystems. How can we restore them or put them back together? So are you mostly looking around metropolitan Brisbane or much more broadly oh, than that? Much more broadly. Do, do a fair chunk of research over in southwest Western Australia, which, uh, as most of your listeners will know, is a pretty special place for plants. Um, there's, you know, many thousands of endemic species just to that corner. Um, and so is that the big, you know, they carry forests or the big Jarrah forests? No, is that further, the kind of further inland in the wheat belt, it's, uh, it's, it's very diverse in there. Um, and we, we study actual annual plants, like these little, little herbs, um, to try and ask questions about diversity maintenance and things like that. And then closer to home, I do a lot of re- restoration research. Now, I mean, we are very aware that biodiversity is under threat and that's one of the impacts that humans have had on plant communities all over the world. I guess your research would confirm that problem? Absolutely. Yeah, we've had an enormous impact on plant, animal, fungal, everything, Mm. diversity. And I mean, some of that, like the wheat belt, would be intervention through deliberate clearing and changing of land use. Uh, Absolutely. So, I mean, most of the wheat belt was was hyper-diverse shrubland and woodland in terms of plants, Uh, and it was cleared over the last hundred years almost completely. The the fragments of forest that are left are are tiny little postcards in a sea of wheat and canola, Uh, but they're still incredibly valuable. They still support, you know, many thousands of species that don't occur anywhere else in the world. Mm. And we've got the same problem here in Queensland. You know, the Brigalow Belt uh, in central Queensland was was dramatically cleared after World War II. Mm. And I mean, it has been a political football over the last decade. <laughs> Indeed, so. yeah, that's right. And, you know, that emerged again during the recent negotiations over uh, getting to Glasgow. Yep, it keeps <laughs> it's, coming up. It does. Mm. Um, so, I mean, that's a challenge in itself. That's a political challenge largely about land use. We see how complicated these kind of issues get when we talk about things like land use and water and so on. Um Climate change offers a more uh, deep-seated threat, if you like. Can you just talk to me about what's happening in terms of the shifting climate, climatic zones and how that affects plant communities? Yeah, I mean, so it's, yeah, it's all getting very complicated, isn't it? So we've had these, um, these disturbances to ecosystems that have dramatically reduced um, the population sizes of many species, so and now they occur in isolated fragments, so they can't exchange genes as readily. Um, 
So that's created barriers to, to gene flow and, and these processes that help maintain healthy populations. And over the top of that, you've got this climate that's shifting. Uh, so through time, so you've got these these parcels in space that are no longer connected like they were. And then through time, you've got this, this changing climate. So how are species supposed to track their preferred climate like they could have if it was a continuous forest? They probably could have easily, well, not easily, but more easily tracked climate. How do they do that in a fragmented landscape? So the picture that you're painting for me is that in a continuous forest, we have a range of species interwoven and... Um, interdependent on each other as things like climatic change occurs there's the opportunity for uh, migration and seeding further up the hill or downstream or whatever is required whereas when those pockets are isolated that kind of movement cannot take place yeah it's it's much harder and so i mean you know let's not fool ourselves to think that the pre-European vegetation distribution of Australia was was somehow static. That was, of course, the product of many, 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 many millions of years of of change. Um, But that was... And also land management. And, of course, for for many millennia before Europeans arrived, some um, some pretty impressive land management. Um, So... It, yeah, it, it's it's not it's not a fun picture to think about, and we try and be involved in the sort of more positive side of thinking. Well, how can we manage things now that this, these are the challenges that we face? Yeah. So you said it gets pretty um, complicated pretty quickly, but ways that we all notice it in our backyards are the arrival of birds or spiders that we haven't seen before. I remember seeing the first green jumping spider in Brisbane. Not, I'm mean, not saying it was the first spider, <laughs> but the first green jumping spider that I yeah. had ever seen, which of course was until recently a tropical mm. uh, beastie. Yeah. Um, you know, there are many birds that are 500 to 1,000 kilometres away from where they used to be. And all this is happening quite rapidly. I mm. remember, I think maybe sometime in the last decade, there was a experience where a migrating bird arrived but the moths that it normally fed on hadn't hatched or you know had hatched earlier and were not active when the birds arrived and they starved to death and fell out of the sky on the beaches of northern new south wales and scared everybody right so you know we're getting all of these weird kind of of effects Mm. um how do you you know frame those kind of problems in your research or what does your research do to help frame those kind of problems yeah so i guess we're trying to think outside the box a little so from a restoration point of view um there's a few things that are relevant there i guess there's invasive species um we're now in the climate's changing and so we're actually we do have species in southeast queensland that are quite problematic weeds um from north queensland as a, there's a couple I can think of. Um, they've been weeds for a while, but the, the climate's probably coming more and more suitable for them in southeast Queensland, which might make them harder to manage. But from a from a restoration point of view, um, where I guess I'm trying to challenge the um, the rather entrenched assumptions uh, assumptions about provenance. So there's a uh, if if you speak to a lot of restoration practitioners, um, the you know the paradigm has been that local seed stock is best because this is locally adapted um, and that that assumption is, is fine if the climate's not shifting um, mm. but when the climate is shifting um, is local going to be 
the most suitable for this location in 50 or 100 years' time. And these are difficult conversations for some people to have, but I, I think maybe it's part of being an academic we're allowed to think about these things. Uh, but I, and I guess part of the difficulty is not just that we have to change our thinking, which is always difficult for mm. people to confront, uh, but that there are so many unknowns. Absolutely, there are. And, uh, you know, luckily the, the, the technology is catching up, so there's some wonderful initiatives in New South Wales. Um, view, viewers, viewers, listeners want to listen to... Uh, um, some great YouTube videos, um, Restore and Renew, uh, if you Google that, there's some amazing initiatives where they're actually, um, they're collecting uh, DNA from different populations of native plant species in, um, in all parts of New South Wales and they're trying to work out what the, what the genetic structure is in those plant populations. And then they want to use that information to say, in the future, where are we best likely to go and get the seed from to plant in this location, assuming this climate change scenario? That's, a, that's pretty much at the cutting edge of where the technology is. Um, and so that's, that's enormously exciting, but it's also... Um, it, it's very slow going to, mm. to go and collect well, all of that. Well, that raises a thousand questions in <laughs> my mind, but instead of uh, starting to fire them at you, I'm going to give you, uh, your ears, dear listener, a uh, rest from us talking. It's raining, it's pouring. Oh my God, it's flooding. Floods can occur almost anywhere here in Queensland and can rise in minutes as flash flooding. After heavy rain in your areas, stay away from rivers, creeks and drains. Never try to drive, ride or walk through the floodwater and if need be, get to higher ground. So, don't enter floodwater. Even water 30 centimetres deep could sweep you off your feet. And teach your children of the dangers. Don't let them play in or around floodwater. Children drown every year in floods. Keep informed about conditions at bom.gov.au. Let's stay safe. If it's flooded, forget it. 4ZZZ cares about our community. And on 4ZZZ, you're listening to Eco Radio with me, Jeff Febbs, in the chair for Dave Whitfield this week and joined by Dr John Dwyer. Uh, John, we were just talking about the impact on plant communities and the ecology of climate change on, and so on. Wanted to start uh, th- talking about how that's affecting us locally, what kind of things are happening on the uh, ground. Um, You were mentioning that we need to start looking at um, whether or not the uh, previously or currently local plants are the plants that we should be uh, planting. What sort of actual changes have taken place in the plants that we're using in bush regeneration and land care activities at the moment? Uh, well, not, not many. Um, so that, that paradigm persists that local is better. Uh, and a lot of the, the sort of policy frameworks that restoration practitioners work to are based on the regional ecosystem framework of, that the Queensland government has mapped. So they've mapped pretty much um, what ecosystem type every part of Queensland was prior to European invasion. And uh, then if you live in a particular area and you're on this soil type, then you're trying to restore back to some historical benchmark. Um, so that's a very backward-looking viewpoint, you could argue. Um, so that's still the, 
in Brisbane, that's still the dominant policy framework. So if we wanted to change that paradigm, can we just sort of crank the whole map 500k south and sort of start <laughs> planting what was in that blue zone to the north? Or Yeah, it's not that, it's not that easy, I don't think. But uh, we could certainly start to... Um, we could certainly start to be a bit more relaxed about things, I think, about... Um, you know, for example, there's, there's, I'm a big fan of rainforests and dry rainforests around Brisbane are pretty neat. So there's a bunch of species that uh, come down as far south as, say, Kilkeven or, or somewhere like that. Um, they don't occur in, in, in and around Brisbane. But in the future, this climate's probably going to be very suitable for them. Um, so do we, do we start by saying, well, let's start introducing some of those species from further north. They're presumably pre-adapted to what Brisbane will become. You know, Brisbane's supposed to have a climate similar to Bundaberg's in the coming decades, Mm. um, depending on which model you subscribe to. So um, I think we we certainly need to start having a play around with these things. Um, And so, I mean, you were talking about the high-level, cutting-edge research of studying DNA to try and make those decisions. Now you've just used the term play around. Why don't we just (laughs) play around? Why don't we just sort of grab all the seeds from around Bundaberg and start chucking them around the forest in Brisbane to see what happens? Yeah, well, I think you could do it. I was probably being a little playful with my language there, but we could do it in a a structured way. We could could start to experiment. Nevertheless, Um, my, my question was asked facetiously but I'm, mm. I, I seriously wonder, yeah. you know, a lot of um, the de- food that's been domesticated over millennia or the uh, land management practices that have evolved have, be- have evolved by trial and error. Yep. And so rather than examining DNA under a microscope and trying to predict with pinpoint accuracy what is going to work, Mm. wouldn't it be better to allow for that trial and error? And sure, we need to manage it and watch it and make sure we haven't, you know, kicked off a noxious weed or a weird crossbreed and all of those kind of things. So, you know, any intervention requires follow-up yep yep but i i take your line perhaps we should relax a bit and i'm just sort of trying to explore that (laughs) and tease that out a little bit what does that that look like so you just touched on a bunch of really good points so um so i think we could start to experiment the problem is that it's you know these trees are incredibly long-lived so at what point do we say well that worked and that didn't work um we might get the seedlings to establish but then the next drought comes along and we lose them you know the, the reasons that trees die are very mysterious to us. They, the death of a tree is actually it's a bit like the death of a human. It's, it's, a, it's a lifetime of mortality agents interacting with one another that en- ends up knocking you over. Um, so it's pretty complicated. But uh, and I mean, t- trees recover from things like lightning strikes in a way that humans don't. So yeah, that's <laughs> true. that interplay between mortality agents and... Uh, you know, growth recovery agents is very visible in trees. It, it is. Mind you, lightning is one of the, the major drivers of mortality in tropical rainforests, and that's something that researchers have only worked out fairly recently, which I thought was interesting. But anyway, um, so but you're right, we need to be a bit cautious because um, if we're bringing genetic material, so we're, so we're just going to get um, more northern populations of species that already exist here, this idea of provenance, and we go and get genetic material from further north, there's a, there's a chance that that material um, will not play nicely with the local material and we'll end up with a thing called outbreeding depression. Uh, but 
you know, so our, yeah. just unpack out breeding depression for me a little bit. So if you end up with um, species that are fairly distant, well, sorry, provenances that are fairly distantly related, their genetic combinations end up being less fit than the, the sort of populations that they came okay, from. Okay, so yeah. because you've outbred, because you've mixed up your uh, genes, yeah. you get, end up with a depressed life form. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the opposite is true. The camphor laurel is a problem in northern New South Wales, but it's not exactly genetically identical to any of its antecedents. There was some kind of crossbreeding that went on. Right, yeah, well, I don't know. Mm. You tell me. <laughs> but apparently that's yeah, the case. Yeah, okay. I mean, I haven't actually I mean, looked at the DNA under the microscope, but that's my understanding. Yeah, okay. So, you know, we need to be a little careful. Um, but, but by the same token, if we think about what we do in... Uh, so something like Tuckaroo, for example, is a street tree very commonly planted in Brisbane. Now, I'm, I guarantee that a lot of the... It's, it's a local rainforest species. Another example is tulipwood, Harpulia pendula. Local rainforest species... Harpulia was one of the dominant species um, in the rainforest right next to the Brisbane CBD originally. So these are very much local species. But we are growing and planting stock from all across the species range, wherever it's being selected. Um, we're, we're, collect we're going to nurseries in New South Wales, further north, and, and just planting these things around. So we're already doing these things um, in, in our sort of urban environment but we're not we're not we're certainly not monitoring it so what can we learn from tulipwood for example there's an example where we have uh, disturbed that provenance or you know almost yeah. randomly yeah. thrown a range of genetic material at a population yep. uh, is are there observable uh, is it evolution it's a small number of generations but i mean are there no one's looked no one's looked. No one's looked, as far as mm. I know. Interesting. Mm. Um, so, one of the questions that Dave wanted to ask you is which plants are at greatest risk? So, are there certain species of plants that you are seeing suffer from, well, I guess, either climate change or, you know, land use disturbances in and around? Whereabouts do you uh, work with your local land management group? Uh, so, I'm in the Banksia Park Bush Care Group in St Lucia, um, which is it's just a wonderful group of people. Um, I'm one of the younger members of that group, might I say. Well, I did notice looking <laughs> through the, um, the land care websites and Facebook pages that, uh, you know, a lot of them are more my age than your age, yep. says the white-haired gentleman <laughs> on the oh, I'm getting this plenty side of those, of don't you worry, Jeff. Yeah, but species at most risk. So I think that they're the ones um, whose populations we've diminished the most through land use change. Um, and then with the, the sort of spectre of ongoing climate change over the top of that, it's a real worry. And on top of that, we've got things like, so myrtle rust, for example. So one of the, one of the rarest species of native tree in Brisbane would be the angle-stemmed myrtle or Gossia gonoclata. Now, that occurs along a few creeks in Brisbane uh, and in Logan. Um, not many individuals left, uh, so incredibly small population, um, a lot of habitat's been disturbed and... What was its range pre-invasion? I think it was all along the Brisbane and Logan River catchments and some of the major tributaries. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was, you know, it was fairly localised. Um, but it's been, it's been heavily fragmented and, and uh, its, it's population is now much smaller. So there's, I think there's research happening at Griffith looking into the, um, 
the ecology and genetics of this species. But over the top of that uh, historical population decline and fragmentation, we've got climate change happening and myrtle rust, which is an introduced pathogen, which is starting to knock over a lot of our rainforest myrtaceae. Um, all throughout Queensland. So the Batasia, everything from the eucalypts through the Callistaman and yeah. So, so mm. the, think about things like the lily pillies, those rainforest versions of of Mertaceae. They're the ones at risk, uh, and uh, it, it's there'll be there there'll be species um, that were once common in my adult lifetime that might be extinct in the wild by the time I pop my clogs, um, just because of this this pathogen. And it was, you know, th something uh, like uh, a rhodomyrtus species that used to just be on almost every rainforest edge you could come across. It was a, almost a sign of disturbance if you found it. Uh, it's, it's now um, looking like it's going to be extinct in the wild pretty soon. So that's pretty confronting, you know. And this wasn't something that anyone would have predicted 30 years mm. ago. Mm. So it's not, it's, it's, it's not just climate change. Yeah, okay. So there's that complex interplay between uh, habitat... Uh, imported pathogens, diseases, predators, whatever, yep. um, and and climate change going on. It's a bit of a hot mess, you could say. Mm. Um, now, you're going to be giving a talk next Wednesday. Do you want to fill the listener in <laughs> about that? Well, I haven't written it yet. <laughs> well, you don't have to give the talk now. You can just tell everyone the no, no, no. address details and how to yeah, find so, out more. So I guess uh, I'm going to um, talk a little bit about some of the ideas we've spoken about today. It's about, is, the, is the regional ecosystem framework, this sort of backward-looking framework, most appropriate? Um, and just point to some research that we're doing at the moment um, in, in our group, um, looking at what what strategies species have to deal with drought and we're doing some experiments at UQ on this um I won't necessarily tell you you know which species are going to win or lose yet but we're looking into it mm. and I guess from your point of view or from the things that you've said to me today uh getting the people who are actively working in land care and bush regeneration to start to grapple with some of these complex issues is part of your agenda and concern yeah so I want I I do want people to start thinking about this, um, but it's not just the restoration practitioners, but it's the policy makers as well. Um, and I think we could start to have some structured experimentation to inform how we go. I think the scientific method's a good one uh, and we can use it. Um, and so that, you know, I think even, even in our urban environment, our street trees, we could be combating future urban heat island effects by planting a whole bunch of diverse dry rainforest species that exist 10 kilometres from here in, mm. in beautiful big patches. And we don't use any of those species in our mm. urban environment. It's this reservoir of potential that we don't use. Mm. So then we would be doing the experiment in situ while we were also um, improving our local urban environment. And, and sequestering carbon. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, now, Dr John, next week you are speaking at the uh, Gap Football Club, is that right? That's right. Uh, Glen Affrick Street in the gap apparently uh and it's uh, save our waterways now organized it uh and big uh, props to renee hovey for for inviting me to talk i'm really looking forward to it it sounds like um they're doing amazing work along the lines of what we've been talking about today looking forward instead of backwards okay and so they're mainly saving our waterways now through uh riparian vegetation and replanting 
that's that's a lot of their work, yeah. A lot of their work. Excellent. Oh, well, get along to the Gap Football Club. What's the name of the street? Glen Affric. Glen Affric Street next Wednesday. What time, John? Uh, 7.30. <laughs> 7.30. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming in and talking to us on Eco Radio today. Thanks so much.